Dr. Richard Winter, who is a Professor Emeritus of Counseling at Covenant Seminary, wrote an article several years ago, and I'll never forget reading it because I had never read anything like it. The title of it was Knowing the Invisible, Inaudible, Untouchable God. And this is how he starts. How can you have much of a relationship with someone who does not talk when you talk to him, whom you cannot see and have never seen, who leaves stories and letters about himself written 2,000 years ago? No phone conversations, no new mail, just tons of very old mail. No faxes or emails, no personal appearances, no burning bush, no cloud, no obvious signs or wonders, a bit distant to say the least. I feel those words um, are really frank, they're honest, and they describe well the struggle that we feel in trying to relate to a God, as one of our theological confessions would say, who is a most pure spirit, invisible without body parts. Translation, no FaceTime, no hey, let's meet up for coffee, right? The ways that we related to each other. And a difficulty that only increases in times of trouble and suffering. Times like this psalmist is going through, the author of this psalm. Psalm 88 is often called the saddest psalm, really one of the saddest passages in the entire Bible. It starts with darkness and it ends with darkness. The one glimmer of hope we have is the fact that the psalmist addresses God as Lord of my salvation. But other than that, there's not much. God seems wholly hidden to him. Not unlike he does to us. When we feel lonely, when our sickness won't go away, when we feel depressed or oppressed, those same experiences that you and I have had at different times. We've been studying the characteristics of God throughout the book of the Psalms, and um, officially, hiddenness doesn't show up on the attribute list much. But it's present enough, and I think worth our discussing and looking at together, if anything, because it's such a felt experience in our lives. You may be here today and not a Christian and going, you know, this is one of the reasons I don't believe and what I can't see or touch. So let's look at simply reasons why God seems hidden and then the experience of it, okay? We'll first start with reason why God seems hidden. Now, there are images that we use when we feel like a people are hiding from us. You know, we might say to them, uh, you know, you're, um, you're wearing a mask. You're living in the shadows. You're living in the closet. Different things we say to express, you're hiding from me. Well, in the Bible, one of those expressions that was used to represent that of God was darkness, to represent the hiddenness of God's nature. After the Ten Commandments are given, Moses instructs the Israelites, don't fear, because they'd seen a lot of thunder 
and a lot of lightning and a lot of smoke and shaking. He said, don't fear. The Lord has done this to test whether or not you fear him, whether you on respect him. And then we're told that Moses drew near to the thick dark where God was. In that case, God's hiddenness and darkness refers to his holiness. We could go to another psalm, Psalm 97, where we read, clouds and thick darkness are around him. The hiddenness of God being represented, representative of his eternal justice and his eternal righteousness. Or we could go to the account in 1 Kings after King Solomon has built the temple and they're having this incredible worship service and the priests come out of the holy place and they're trying to do their priestly service but then a cloud descends of glory, a cloud so great they can't do their service. And King Solomon says, this is a fulfillment of this. The Lord said that he would dwell in thick darkness. Someone has said, if God were small enough to be understood, he wouldn't be big enough to be worshipped. I wish I had said it, but I got to say it, right? Darkness, mystery, hiddenness, all these things refer to the greatness, the glory, the mystery of God's nature. And that quote is true. If there's not something mysterious or hidden to you about an eternal, free, omnipotent, omniscient God, you're just worshiping a reflection of yourself. He must be hidden by his nature. But it's not only his nature, we're told in his wisdom, the wisdom of his saving plan. The Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians says, that he was given a call by God to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ, meaning the glory of the grace of God that comes through Jesus Christ. And then he says this, a message that had been hidden, a mystery that had been hidden in God for ages. What do we learn there? What he's saying is, well, as long as men have lived, they have sought to save themselves and they have failed. In their own wisdom, they have failed. But God, in his wisdom, brought about a plan to save people. But that wisdom was hidden, in particular, from those that regard themselves as wise. Those that believe, they have the wisdom. And that hiddenness is actually a form of judgment. You hear Jesus Christ praying this way. It's sort of perplexing. It's surprising. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Now, by children, he's not talking about little kids. He's talking about the humble. You have revealed these things to the humble, your gracious purposes. They are hidden to those that are not. In fact, Jesus said that was what his parables were doing. He, he taught in parables as a form of judgment upon the proud and the wise. Because if you're going to understand a tricky story like a parable, you're going to have to be like his disciples and humble yourself and go, I don't really understand that. Can you explain it? Where a proud person would go, what the heck? And just walk away. And so both the nature of God and the wisdom of God contribute to his hiddenness. But that's not the reason why the psalmist is feeling his hiddenness. It's not because he believes he's too wise. 
It's not because he hasn't experienced the glory of God. It's because he's suffering. He's in trial. Which reminds us that even the most spiritually mature person can be tormented with a sense of God's awayness, a sense of God's hiddenness, which often feels like distance and displeasure. And as a pastor, I have witnessed this for years. Pastoring this church, I've witnessed it. We're strong, committed believers are brought into a season of incredible trial. And these people that before could so clearly see God go, I don't see him at all. I've witnessed it in my own family in periods when my wife's chronic illness was particularly debilitating and we would pray for years that God would bring relief. Where are you, God? And what might be worse than the suffering itself is the sense that in your trial and suffering, God's against me. He's not with me. And so we need to hear this word. John Calvin, when he read the saddest psalm, one of the insights he brought was this. He said this, It is therefore not surprising that a man, he's talking about the author of the psalm, it is therefore not surprising that a man so highly distinguished by the spirit of wisdom was the author of this psalm. A man whom God had adorned with such excellent gifts to be an example to others, encouraging all the afflicted who are on the brink of despair to lead people to God himself. Just the opposite of what the psalmist was probably feeling, right? Hindsight's 2020. But that's, that was true, the view from heaven. And so it shouldn't surprise us that such a hopeless psalm could come from such a godly person. It shouldn't surprise us that the one that would live to see God would feel his hiddenness most personally and most painfully. It, wouldn't, it shouldn't surprise us that even the most mature and committed believer and follower of God would suffer the worst hiddenness of God. Because after all, that's the story of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There's two scenes that you might remember if you know those gospel stories. The one before he is, the night he's arrested, where is he? He's in a pitch dark garden, prostrate on the ground, pleading with God that he would not have to experience the separation, the separation from the Lord, crying out, sweating with what were like drops of blood. The hiddenness of God experienced by the Son of God. But even more so on the cross just days later where he's crucified and it says the land grew dark and the sun failed and the Son of God cried out, Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you hidden yourself from me? No one experienced the reality of Psalm 88 like Jesus Christ. He was the one that was abandoned for our sake. He was the one that was enveloped in the darkness of God. He was the one brought down to the land of death and suffering the pain and the wrath of hell. And he did that so that everyone that might hope in him might know even in their worst experience 
even in their saddest moment, even in their most lonely moment, their most despondent moment, that you would know, for those that believe, are united to him in an unbreakable bond, that you and I would know that we can claim the promise, God is my helper, he will never leave me or forsake me, and that you and I can declare, like the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, maybe even if it's through broken words and through sobs, who will separate me from the love of Christ? Will sickness, will distress, will angels or rulers, will death or life, no one will separate me. This is the hope of the believer, but it doesn't always feel that way, does it? Which gets us to our experience of God feeling hidden. I think once before I mentioned a Bob Dylan song, and um, it's a song, um, one of my favorite Bob Dylan songs called It's Not Dark Yet. And it really doesn't do justice just to the read lyrics. You, you really have to hear the musical setting because the setting of the music just amplifies uh, what he says. But listen to the last stanza of this song. I was born here and I'll die here against my will. I know it looks like I'm moving, but I'm standing still. Every nerve in my body is so naked and numb. I can't even remember what it was I came here to get away from. Don't even hear the murmur of a prayer. It's not dark yet, but it's getting there. That feeling of, I haven't been totally extinguished, but man, I think I'm really close. Three times the psalmist refers to the darkness he feels in this psalm. But more than that, he speaks of his emotional exhaustion. Have you ever gone through a time of disappointment, a sorrow, where all you could do for days was just cry? Just cry. You're exhausted by crying. You're exhausted by that. He goes, I cry out day and night. Every day I call upon you, I spread out my hands to you, but his prayers are like deaf echoes across a lifeless canyon. Nothing's coming back. He says that he's bloated with sorrow. I'm, my soul is full of trouble, and it has been a long time. Verse 15, he says, as I look back on my life, I have experienced affliction close to death from my youth up. Some of you can relate to that. Some of you can look back in your story and go, it has been a long time that I've lived in that place. He feels like he's in spiritual solitary confinement. In verse 8, he, he uses a word that's representative of a leper and says, my company shunned me. My beloved and my friends have become like darkness to me. And his world has become a netherworld, a place of death and dying. He uses a poetic word in Hebrew, Sheol, which means the grave. But not only that, he refers to a place in Sheol, Abaddon, which the place is of ruin and destruction. Now that's a tough place, right? You're not only living in the land of death, but you are in the town of ruin and destruction. 
this is the world that he sees. Uh, recently, Meg and I were watching um, the Netflix uh, series Stranger Things. Anybody watch that, Stranger Things? A couple of us. Um, you know, it's sort of a sci-fi horror thing, and um, I'll tell you, it sticks with you. It sticks with you, but not to ruin it, uh, if you plan to watch it, you may not like that stuff. Or when you watch it, may you go, why in the world is my pastor like this stuff? Right, but that's, you know, that's even worse. Uh, but it, it, the setting is this small town, but it's not just a small town. There's this parallel universe, which they called Upside Down. And in this parallel universe, um, it's like this is your kitchen here, and right on the other side is, a, is, is your kitchen as well, but it don't look like your kitchen. <laughs> it looks like a fire swamp. It looks like a toxic place of death. It's just dark. Everything is just grossly distorted. And the psalmist has that feeling. I'm looking out on my life, and I'm looking out of my place, and it, none of it looks the same because you're hidden from me, God. But the worst thing is what I mentioned earlier. He feels like God is against him. That's the worst part of it. He says, your wrath has swept over me. You know, maybe this summer you went into a rough ocean and you, you, know, you thought you were standing and boom, boom, boom. He feels like God's wrath is doing that to him. It's heavy on me. The late, renowned Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner sums it up by saying this. Looking back, this man can remember nothing but ill health and ill fortune. Looking Godward, he is terrified. Looking for human comfort, he could see none at all. There are times when someone experiences such great loss and hardship that you feel like it would be a sin to even speak. There's a certain reverence that you feel before their grief because you're appalled. And I, I felt that as I read this psalm, and I think the way it ends leaves us into that place where quick answers ain't going to work. Quick solutions aren't going to work. And it raises the question, anytime someone comes to this psalm, is there any hope or an encouragement in it? Or is this like all a mistake? You know, did this just sort of slip into the Bible while God wasn't looking, like a WikiLeak, you know, where God and the angels are like, oh, how did that get in there? How did that slip in there? Well, of course not. God intended it to be in here for you and me. He inspired it to be there. In fact, the New Testament says that all Scripture, even Psalm 88, is inspired, breathed out by God, and useful for us. These are useful words. You realize that Psalms were songs that they would sing like the songs that we sing. And it's a challenge to me because, I mean, we sang poor sinner dejected with fear. And maybe you were like, man, oh man, this is a downer. Imagine if we sang Psalm 88. I don't know, maybe more people would come to church feeling like there's a place where God knows my story. But in close, I want to mention just a few things, four things, that I think this psalm does get us in terms of encouragement. First of all, this psalm teaches us that we can offer honest, unedited prayers to the God of heaven. In fact, in your time of suffering, you must 
do that. You must do it. If you can't do it, you probably won't make it. We need to tell God our hopelessness. We need to speak it like the psalmist. We need to bring a holy argument like the psalmist who says, you know, does your steadfast love exist in the grave? I mean, he's arguing with God, right? And this isn't the only place you see that. You can find Jeremiah doing this in the book of Lamentations, which means that you and I can worship even when we're despairing. That seems just, you know, counter to what we understand. We tend to think, I'll go back to church when I feel better. And maybe it's because the expectations are that way. Maybe it's like, well, I can tell my friends have pretty much their tolerance level has hit this in my community group. You know, I've been dealing with this thing, and I feel like, that's it. Time to solve this thing. But you must know that God, you can worship him even as you despair, as you bring your broken heart to him. Job, in the story of Job, Satan says to God, the only reason people worship you is because you give them stuff and bless them. You take that away, they won't worship you. This psalm is evidence against that. Second of all, we're taught that unrelieved suffering can go on a long time. It can go on a long time, my friends. And that's hard in our day, right? Where sitcoms are 22 minutes, dramas are 48 minutes, everything gets resolved quickly. And we want that sort of resolution ourselves. In fact, there's some theology that will justify it. There's some theology taught that will say, if you have enough faith, you can dodge all the bullets. If you can have enough faith, you can make yourself immune to suffering. And the only thing I would say to that is, Talk to Job, talk to Jeremiah, talk to Ruth, talk to Esther, talk to Peter, talk to Paul, talk to Jesus. That's bad theology. And it teaches you this, that the length of your trial is not a verdict on the strength of your faith. The length of your trial is not a verdict on the strength of your faith. Things are much more involved than that. Third, it reminds us that God sovereignly reigns evil th even through evil and suffering. Now, here's the thing we get into. When something terrible happens in the world, this is the approach. It's usually God doesn't get mentioned at all. Let's keep God out of this because this is really embarrassing for him right now. You know, nat natural desire or some horror. Or he's brought in in just sort of a light way, like, in, you know, our prayers are with you, which I think is wonderful that people say that, but just kind of a light way. But this idea that God is close in and he rules over everything is not brought up. Because people would say, well, let me tell you where that's going to go. If God exists and evil exists, that's got to mean God is evil because he doesn't get rid of the suffering. That's the reasoning. You've heard it before. You've probably been taught it. But, you know, life is more complex than that, isn't it? Even in our own lives, we know that. And we are more complex than that. And God is more complex than that. Just because we can't understand a reason for suffering doesn't mean one doesn't exist. And so what we find is two things being uphold, that God is reigning through it, but he's also taking the suffering and the evil, and he's manhandling it for the good of his people while he's not causing it. 
It's a hard thing for you and I to understand, but look at the alternatives. Fate and chance. That ain't very encouraging. Things are just going to happen, and they happen, and there's no hope or sympathy or explanation to them. The psalmist is bringing his complaint to the right department. He's bringing exactly where it should go. And that's where you ought to bring your complaint, whatever it is today. But lastly, what the psalm teaches us, that the presence of suffering is not the final order of things. It's not the final order of things. You know, there's not all psalms give us names, but this one does give us the name. Haman is one pronunciation. And he is a songwriter. He's an artist. He's part of uh, the writers of the canonical psalms. He's part of the group, actually, that wrote some of the richest psalms in the entire Psalter. It's not the end of the story for him. God uses his brokenness in 2016. He brings it through a broken heart of an artist. And in that, we're reminded that his story didn't end there, and our story will not end there. The book of Romans says this to it. It says, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Have you ever seen a woman give birth to a baby? That's, that's something, right? The pains of childbirth, the groaning. And not only the creation, but we ourselves are groaning, who have the first fruits of the Spirit of God grown inwardly. Did you hear that? Having the Spirit of God doesn't mean you don't groan. In fact, the ones that have the Spirit of God are the ones that are groaning. They're ones that are inwardly groaning for something more, for something else. That's what this psalmist is doing here. And we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we are saved. My friends, we have to keep singing the song. And we need each other during those times. I think I've made more mistakes than successes as a pastor here. I remember once uh, a dear widow in our church, some of our folks just went and visited her. And, um, you know, she had lost her husband. And, uh, you know, I knew enough not to you know, wax pastorisms, you know, early on, so I waited a couple months, right? A couple months, that's good in America for grieving, right? I'm being facetious, by the way, in case you can't read my somewhat dry, not good humor. But anyway, uh, you know, I called her up one day and she was just sharing her grief and I said, well, the good news is your husband's in glory. We'll see him one day in heaven. And she said, you know, that doesn't mean a whole lot to me right now. And I was like, Hmm. Back to school. Right? Now, don't get me wrong. There's a word of hope, and many of the Psalms have a word of hope. But it takes a, a, a the Proverbs say, a man of, of deep wisdom. You know, to know it, when you get into someone's heart, you get into deep water. And even our own way we've had to handle suffering. You know, if you haven't yet gone through a lot of suffering, you should feel guilty about that. I promise you, God will get to you right? But if you haven't, it's probably best to watch and observe and just listen and pray. If you have, you probably know the time to say something. But even then, 
you don't always do. But the Holy Spirit does. But mostly we have to keep singing this song together. Because the one thing that I've noticed when people are in Psalm 88, they just sort of need you to be okay with them being there. I've had people say to me, Glenn, I come to church and I come just for the table. I can barely handle the music right now. I certainly can't tolerate your preaching right now. But I, I, I'm here. Amen for that. It might be that you and I sit around a little bit longer. But I hope that's hopeful to me. I hope it is to you. In the end, I think this psalm is one big invitation for people that struggle like us. Let's pray. Lord, we worship you even when you're hidden from us. I pray particularly for uh, friends in this room right now that feel that keenly. They're in a season where they don't see you, where they wonder, is it going to go on and on and on and on? I pray that you would draw particularly close to them and those of us that are in their lives to know how to be present and pray. Thank you for your inspired word in Christ's name. Amen.